Sometimes I think about how effective change happens. And I remember a route that I used to take often on campus on my way to class. There was a paved path that took you around a corner and students like myself to save time would cut the corner and walk along the grass. And eventually enough people walked the patch of grass that it became a little dirt trail. And after a matter of months, the university decided to pave it because it was clearly the better way to do things. And maybe that's how all change works in a way. You have to have people who are going to find the right direction to go and keep wearing down the right paths, doing what they know is right. The two women you're going to meet today have been honing the art of dialogue and change for their entire careers. They spent time in the state legislature in different capacities, are both advocates for the LGBTQ community in Alabama, and have both faced some adversity along the way. I'm Anastasia Titorenko, and you're listening to Way Out, a show about the LGBTQ community in Alabama. Rick is bringing you today's story, Hymnals and Hate Mail. Just a heads up, there is some mature language in the second half of the show, so if you're listening with children, be mindful of that. My family, our business, for lack of a better way to say it, is the church. So not only my mother and my father, but I have 10 other family members, including grandparents, aunts and uncles, uh, cousins now, who are ministers, both Baptist and Methodist. It's what everyone did. And for me, it was the lens through which I understood everything. The church and the community of the church was my entire worldview. This is Eva Kendrick. She's the executive director of the Human Rights Campaign in Alabama a political action organization working to bring legal equality to LGBTQ Alabamians. And so when I came out to myself in my teens, particularly when we were living in a small town because of a church opportunity, it was terrifying. And it was terrifying because not only did I no longer understand myself through the lens by which I'd made sense of the world, But now I thought, am I going to cost my family their jobs? Could I end our livelihood? Eva, like many, struggled with her queer identity, seeing it as in conflict with her faith and the work of her family. So I was 17, and I remember the weekend that I fell in love with my first girlfriend, whom I care very much for today, um, that I opened my Bible and turned to the back of it. It was a teen study Bible from the late 90s, early 2000s. And it was this section on what does the Bible say about X, Y, and Z? You know, what does the Bible say about Christmas? What does the Bible say about friends? All the things that teens are thinking about. Well, I went to the back, and for the first time, I looked for what does the Bible say about, and at the time, the word was homosexuality. And I remember turning to that page in the back of the Bible and, and then turning to the subsequent pages indexed there and just weeping because what I was reading said, You cannot be this and fit in the world in which you've been raised. And I just thought, how can that be? How can this part of me that feels so true and honest and free and liberated and joyful be so inconsistent with the trueness and the liberation and the joy and the honesty that I had felt in the church. And so it was a horrible time. Uh, The day actually that I wept into my Bible was the day my youngest sister, who's 11 years younger than I am, uh, decided to be baptized, which in the Baptist church means, especially as the minister's family, that we stood and received the entire congregation that day. 
And I remember, as I looked at my little sister who was six, and here I am, 17, I was shaking folks' hands who came through the receiving line, and I remember thinking to myself, would you shake my hand if you knew? Would you give me a hug if you knew? Would you call me your adopted granddaughter if you knew about me, what I know now? And it just broke my heart because it was the first time that I realized maybe I didn't belong with God's people, and that was terrifying. But like most secrets, Eva's would eventually be pulled out of her by her parents in a painful way. I came out to my parents pretty quickly after, and it wasn't voluntary, and um, it was horrible. It was one of those moments of having to choke out the words, and, and it was more not saying I'm gay, but trying to say, you know, Mom, it, it was just a conversation. I, it's not for sure. I, I don't know. It was just a conversation. Trying to detract and deflect in any possible way, but all the while, and I look back on it now, realizing it was this moment where my mother and I were both having to face something that we both knew we would have to face with each other at some point. And, um, and it was really painful because my mother felt that she'd done something wrong. I felt that I was inherently wrong. And so there was really no reconciliation. I remember that was the first time I honestly cried myself to sleep. They didn't reach any conclusions, and Eva left feeling alienated. It wasn't until she was in college, living a picture-perfect life on the outside, as VP of Panhellenic, the student body, and her sorority's judiciary, things that kept her looking straight and on top of everything, that Eva knew she would have to come to terms with herself to be happy. I was all these things, and I was so closeted, and I was miserable. And I had actually met someone uh, after a pretty horrible breakup. My five-year relationship with my first girlfriend had ended in misery, misery that was entirely kept within myself because I didn't tell anyone. And I was sitting in the floor of my room, and my best friend, um, whose son I'm a godmother for, sat down in front of me and said, what is going on? And I said, I can't tell you. I can't, I can't tell anyone. I can't tell you what's going on. And she had told me about a friend of hers who had come out to her in the past year. And she put her hands on my knees and she sat down in front of me and she said, is this something I've gone through with another friend of mine? And because I couldn't say the words, I'm gay, I just kind of swallowed and nodded and said, yeah. And this friend helped me realize that I needed to seek help for myself, not because of being gay, but because of the ways that being closeted had harmed me. And with this friend's encouragement, Eva was able to speak to her parents again, except this time it was on her own terms. And so that was when I was 21, and, and I went and I told my parents again. And I said, you know, this hasn't gone away. It was just a conversation to some extent at 17, but this has been going on for five years, and I'm miserable, and I need help, and I need to be talking about this with you all. And, and in many ways, I think that Grief and pain can often be a great equalizer. They knew I had loved and lost and that that was a new reality for me. They didn't know the script for that. That was one of the things my mother told me when I first came out to her. She said, Eva, I just don't know the script for this. I don't know what comes next. And after all these years of working in LGBTQ rights, you know, my mother has passed away, unfortunately, but I wish I could tell her now what an apt description that is for what so many family members and friends and parents go through when one of their family members comes out to them as LGBTQ. There's just not always a script. 
And after finding some sense of acceptance and closure in telling her parents, Eva rediscovered her faith in a new light. I went to an Episcopal church one day, and the sermon from the priest was about the need for marriage equality with a faith argument for marriage equality. And then I celebrated the Eucharist for the first time in the Episcopal tradition, and for me, it was as if I was experiencing something that I had been looking for my whole life but didn't have words for. And I felt this immediate sense of spiritual belonging, uh, spiritual arrival in many senses, that my seeking had come to a moment of fruition with the Eucharist and felt so at home with those two things combining of a message from a faith leader that was affirming of marriage equality and then a liturgy in which there was no political point in prayer. There was no Baptist minister who was directing prayer at me as the gay person. We were following a Book of Common prayer, and it was all of us letting words be what they are for each of us, which was just magic. And so what I ultimately got to was this idea, it was very much in my early 20s when I was kind of moving between the Baptist and Episcopal worlds, of asking myself a major question. And the question was, is it more of a sin to be gay. Something that I know has been a part of who I am since I was four, when I was 12, when I was 17, now when I'm in my early 20s. And to love another person and to share openness and compassion and truth and joy and peace and love with this person. And for me, monogamously, that was important for me. Or is it more of a sin to closet myself to seek relationships with men whom I know I cannot love fully, whom I may love and care for, but whom I will never share the passion and the true connection that I know I have the capacity for with the women that I've loved. Is it more of a sin to marry those men, to bear false witness, which is one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. And I thought, my God, what if every day I bear false witness. What's the bigger sin here? And for me, it was the idea that I might closet myself and that I might build my life on a lie. And I decided that I would take that risk. And so if there is a heaven and if I get there one day and there is a list and someone at the gate says, "Mm, you chose to be gay, I'm gonna have a whole lot of questions. A few years later, Eva met the woman that would be her wife, someone who also shared a deep spirituality and connection to the church. So we got engaged March 17, 2014. We were legally married in a really precious small family ceremony in Washington, D.C. on May 31st, 2014. And then on September 13, 2014, we had a um, blessing at Swanee, which is the University of the the South, the Episcopal University for the Southern Diocese. And we were the first and only actually same-sex couple to have a religious blessing of our union in All Saints Chapel. And the great part about that is the only, because now couples can have a full um, marriage and you don't have to just have a blessing anymore. It's armed with the story of her own personal struggles and tribulations that Eva charges into her work with now. Our mission statement is to ensure full legal equality for LGBTQ Alabamians while changing institutions and hearts and minds 
through engagement with our corporate and healthcare equality partners, through community development, and through faith outreach. And so what does that mean? <laughs> that means long-term, big goal, we want to make sure that at the state and municipal levels, there are full legal protections on the books for LGBTQ persons related to non-discrimination and housing, employment, public accommodation, and credit. Even though the Supreme Court passed marriage equality in 2015, LGBTQ people are still not protected in their daily lives. Right now, Alabama is one of over 10 states that doesn't have LGBTQ non-discrimination laws. That means that you can be fired, refused housing, or even evicted for being LGBTQ in Alabama. Now, some employers have adopted non-discrimination policies, and some cities, like Birmingham, have passed non-discrimination ordinances. But in the state at large, there are no policies in place. That's where Eva steps in. And so I work with our legislature, I work with our governor's office, I work with our corporate partners who work at the legislative level to ensure that we fight back against every anti-LGBT bill we see introduced in Montgomery and that we fight for every possible pro-equality bill that we can introduce and meaningfully build dialogue around. It's going to be a long process, but my friends in Montgomery know that I'm buckled in for the long run, so I think they expect it. Her faith has also allowed her a lot of freedom and leverage in accomplishing the work she sets out to do in the Bible Belt South. I joke a lot that working with ministers and working with legislators isn't that different. Uh, they both have constituencies that they are representing. Um, generally, legislators and ministers are more progressive than the constituencies they represent. And so there's a lot of room for dialogue. And I take many of the lessons learned from my faith organizing years and bring that to my legislative work. The bottom line is no progress happens with legislators without relationship. And this will be my fourth legislative session. I very rarely go into a meeting asking for something. I go into a meeting to say, here is who I am, here is what I can bring to the table, and I want to be a friend and a resource to you. No matter what party affiliation, you represent constituents who identify as LGBTQ, and you certainly represent constituents who know and love someone who is LGBTQ. So let me help you build a language to understand those constituencies' concerns, and let me help you learn to better communicate how you are voting and why you are voting on any issues that affect them in ways that will be relative to them, that they can understand. And that's a conversation that is not partisan. Understanding constituencies is not partisan. The bulk of Eva's work is centered on having constructive conversations with lawmakers that might see her as someone who stands against their values, be they religious or not. One of my favorite stories about working in the legislature is that I was working on a bill a couple years ago, and everyone kind of works in all of these public spaces. There's not a ton of private meeting spaces in the state house, And so I was working in a lobby on the sixth floor, and I'm typing up a press release when I hear a person from the other side of the room shout out, hey, who do you work for? And I thought, oh my gosh, well, I'm not going to tell you who I work for right off the bat. And so I said, well, I work for a civil rights organization outside of Birmingham. And the person said, oh yeah, which one? said the human rights campaign and the man said human rights like civil rights voting rights you know what kind of human rights are we talking here and so I kind of bit my tongue and I said well here we go and so I told him I said well I work actually on LGBTQ rights and the person's eyes just got huge and I thought 
that looks like he's actually quite happy to hear this. It was delight instead of the fear and the confusion that I'm used to. So the person walked across the room and introduced himself as a former Republican gubernatorial candidate and asked if he might ask me a couple questions about myself. And since I'm an open book, I said, sure, you know, go ahead. So he asked me about my whole coming out story. And he asked when I knew. I told him four. And I told him a little bit of the stories I've told you all. And then he said, when did you really know? And I said, well, 12 and 17. He said, when did you come out? I said, 17. And he said, when did you really come out? And I said, that's a really good question, 21. And we ended up having this great conversation about my family, our ties to faith communities. He really wanted to know how my family was responding to my being married, how my family was doing with it now, what Christmas was like in our family. And I found the conversation to be quite fun. I liked telling him my story. We talked for about an hour, really openly. Again, this is a public space. So legislators are going by hearing my coming out story. And I thought, well, there goes all my cover. But we talked for an hour, and uh, the whole time he had a colleague with him. And this colleague looked so incredibly uncomfortable. And I talk to people all the time in my work, and I know when I lose somebody. And I lost this guy two minutes in, and no matter what I tried to pull him back in, I just couldn't do it. He just wasn't connecting. I wasn't connecting with him. And so I just kind of gave up, and at the end of the conversation said goodbye to my new friend and thought, well, I just didn't make it with that guy. Um, something just didn't resonate. So I went back to work, and not two minutes later, I look up and see somebody walking directly toward me. And when I look up, it's the man that I didn't connect with. And he walks over to me, he sits down right beside me, and he pulls out his phone. And on the phone is a picture of a young woman. And he leans in and he whispers to me, this is my daughter, she's a freshman in college, and she just came out to me. How do I tell her that I love her? And I was just stunned, because here I am, thinking that I wasn't connecting with this guy the whole hour-long coming-out story I was telling, when in reality, he was the person who needed to hear the story the most. Her takeaway is, of course, one of forward action. And if more and more of those persons openly said, I know and love someone who is LGBTQ and voted that way, we would have much less consideration of anti-equality legislation in Alabama. Eva's work in Montgomery is challenging, but she's got people in her corner, people like Patricia Todd, the only openly gay representative in the Alabama State House and in the history of Alabama. Stay with us. I was born and raised in a small town in Kentucky. Um, it was a college town, Eastern Kentucky University. Went to a private school, did not do well, did, never thought I would need an education. <laughs> Married my high school sweetheart, and that lasted about six years and went our separate ways. But he really introduced me, really, to the women's movement. This was probably 75 we were fighting for the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, to be ratified to the Constitution, and he bought me a copy of Ms. Magazine, and which was a real radical magazine at the time, and handed it to me. He said, here, I think you need to read this. I read it cover to cover, and I've been pissed off ever since. Patricia Todd is an animated voice of the oppressed in the state legislature, advocating for communities that suffer from poverty, racism, and LGBTQ-based discrimination. She ran for the District 54 seat of the State House in 2006 and got elected. She won re-election in 2010 and 2014. 
She talked about what motivated her to run and what it's been like as the token lesbian of the Alabama legislature. You know, had I really thought about that, I probably wouldn't have done it. I knew I could do a, as good a job as anybody else that was serving. I have a master's in public administration. I've been in politics a long time. I love po- public policy. But I look back on that and realize I, I was just happy to be there. I was enthusiastic. I realized that I had to, I identified who the stakeholders were in the state house, which are the clerks. <laughs> And I got to know them. And, and I have a sense of humor, and I've never met a stranger. That helps. And um, just started really listening and learning. I never had a negative encounter since I've been in office. Never. People are shocked by that. Now, I know people have said things sort of behind my back, but nothing personal or damning. The speaker at the time, Seth Hammond, told the rest of the members, said, look, she got elected just like all of you, and we will treat her with the same respect we do each other. I know she's a first, but we've been through this before with a first, and we will move forward. And, I mean, they were treated me with the same respect they did each other. Patricia also speaks about the importance of promoting equality and fair treatment of LGBTQ Alabamians. Queer community is so different than any other social movement because we are literally everywhere. We are in everybody's family. and neighbors, we're co-workers, bosses, you know, we're everywhere. So our fight is really one of social justice and that people do not understand who we are. Lots of people think this is a choice. I always say, why would I choose to be gay? I've been discriminated against. I could be a victim of a hate crime. My family might disown me. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm proud to be gay, but I didn't choose it. And the, the most important thing for me right now, we're gaining ground in non-discrimination, uh, in corporations, health care. She jokes that being in the legislature helps raise the awareness of other representatives. I'm the first gay person most of those folks have ever known, they think. But her work comes with heavy responsibilities, especially in trying to move the government forward and sponsoring legislation that would afford the LGBTQ community more legal protections. Her sense of humor and hyper-awareness of state government hypocrisy makes the challenges of her work easier to cope with. You know, people assume that we cannot be discriminated against. I've talked to tons of people and said, well, they can't discriminate against you. I said, oh, yes, they can. We are not a protected class. Protected class includes race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, gender, age over 45. I said, it doesn't say sexual orientation or gender identity in that. So we're not protected. Yes, we can sue our employer if we believe we were wrongfully terminated. And hopefully they will uh, use the 14th Amendment or other laws to protect us from that discrimination. But it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. That's why we need the Equality Act, which has bill been introduced in Congress for the last couple of years, that will add us to the Civil Rights Act as a protected class. In the state of Alabama, of course, we don't have non-discrimination policies. Here's another hypocrisy. When I bring this up, that we hate crimes, we're not included in the hate crimes bill, and I've tried to get 
sexual orientation, gender identity included, and the response from the Republicans is, oh, we don't need that. Every victim should be treated the same. It shouldn't matter what demographic they come from. I'll write that down. The next year, when they come forth with a bill to include firefighters or first responders in the hate crimes bill, I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now, you told me last year it shouldn't matter what demographic the victim is. Now, do you believe that or not? Are you just discriminating against my group? You know, they have a hard time responding to that. I mean, it's pretty easy to point out the hypocrisy because there's so much of it down there. But I try to do it in a jokingly manner and just point it out to them in a way that they really can't defend their position. She has also tried to work with the ramifications of HB 24 that passed, the bill allowing for religious exemption of adoption institutions to LGBTQ adopting parents. I mean, I did everything I could (laughs) to stop the bill and plead with my colleagues. I said, if you vote for this bill, what you're saying to me is I'm not a fit parent. And um, they would use the argument of, well, you you know, these faith-based communities shouldn't be forced to serve people they don't want to. And if you can't get an adoption through Catholic social services, you can go to another one. I said, that's like saying in the 60s, oh, I'm sorry, you can't order a Coke at this soda uh, fountain, but you can go down the street to one that will serve you. Same concept. The protective umbrella of religious freedom upsets Patricia because many of the legislators use it to promote religiously inspired laws that hurt the LGBTQ population. HB 24 is one of many quote-unquote religious freedom bills that's been passed in a few states, Ohio and Mississippi, to name a couple. Well, it's religious freedom. You know, this is the new term we deal with today, which is anything but religious freedom. It allows a religious organization that provides adoption services to deny services to same-sex parents. You know, and my point I tried to make is how many kids we got in foster care? Right now in Alabama, it's about 5,500. And I know tons of same-sex parents that are raising children. And let's look at the facts. Most queer people were not raised by queer parents. So to think that the child's going to be influenced somehow by the sexual orientation of the parents is stupid. I mean, it just doesn't bear out. And I said, and also, let's look at this. These are two people who obviously have the means to raise a child and want a child. Loving, caring parents that are willing even to take a child with a disability. I said, we don't have enough people adopting children. You know, why would we want to limit it in any way? It should be based on the quality of the parents, not any demographic they belong to. And while her time in the government is personally challenging for a number of reasons, her work hasn't always been steeped in negativity, and she has found surprising amounts of acceptance in even unexpected places. I worked for U.S. Steel for three, uh, two years. And I worked for, I reported to the head of the union and a person in HR. I coordinated a career development program for them. The World Series during this particular year went into extra innings and I was invited to be on a show that came on 10.30 on Sunday nights, okay? And I was gonna debate this Christian guy who had gone through conversion therapy. <laughs> we taped this thing. And it was it was a good interview. 
it comes on, the World Series ends, this show starts, not even a commercial break. So all the steel workers who've been watching <laughs> the World Series now see, and they titled me Patricia Todd, comma, lesbian. <laughs> and so I come into work the next day, never thinking about it, never thought about it. And I walk into the steel worker's office because I always went in there and had coffee with them. You know, these are good old boys. And they say, oh, we saw you on TV last night. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. And they were like, well, I thought you did great. We don't care who you, who you love. You do a great job for us. We're just going, you know, who cares? Who cares? But it is the South, and we're still struggling with people accepting the LGBTQ community. Patricia sees the heat of this in a number of ways, one being hate mail, which she takes in stride. I get a lot of hate mail, a lot of hate mail, and hate phone calls. When they call me on the phone, I call them back, and they're shocked. <laughs> but I'm like, were well, you stupid enough to leave a message on my phone? All I have to do is call back and say, hey, you know, John, this is Representative Patricia Todd. And they're like, uh. Patricia is talking to her partner here. Do you have that last letter we got from the... Uh, the, the best letter? Yeah. I so. <laughs> now, I've got a very thick skin. I have to, to be in this position. So I just laugh. I, I think they're hysterical. <laughs> so it comes like this. Okay. This is pretty typical. It looks like this. And it says, <laughs> You fat, oh, lesbian faggot. With cum dropping... Dripping. Dripping lips, you ain't gonna impeach nobody. Get that dildo out of y'all, y'all asshole. No I'll fire you, lady queer. I am twisted, but I couldn't make that up. So now all my friends start calling me lady queer. <laughs> Patricia also receives phone calls with similarly heinous messages. We asked if she ever talks to the people that call and changes their minds. One, one guy left a message, and I've, I've recorded all of them. She's, she's writing a book, and we're including a lot of this in there. And one of them was a man. He lived in North Carolina. I mean, none of them are my constituents, mind you. He says, you are going to hell today. Today! And then hangs up. I'm like, really? I'm still here. Oh, yeah, you lesbian freak. You're going to hell today! I mean, these are sick people. Now, I got one, and usually it sparked. I've done some uh, interviews on MSNBC, you know, in the comedy show and stuff. So it's usually after that that I'll, I'll get some from my state. But I got one, and I started to answer. I mean, I was starting to listen to it. I thought, oh, God, this is going to be horrible. You know, sometimes you can just tell. And this guy says, I'm, I actually, I'm, I live in Maryland. I saw you on TV. I'm a Marine about to be deployed to Afghanistan for my fourth tour. And I think, oh, this is going to be bad. He says, I want to applaud you for what you're doing. He said, I'm straight, married, got kids. He said, but I serve with a lot of openly gay soldiers that have saved my life. And I will fight to defend their rights. And I just am so happy there's somebody like you in Alabama. So while the struggles of being gay in a conservative red state are real and hard to overcome, Patricia has done her best to keep a smile on her face while fighting for those that are underrepresented, even if it means a nasty letter, or two, or more.
Since this episode was produced, Patricia Todd has left her role as an Alabama state legislator. Thank you for all of the work that you've done, Patricia, and for all that you will continue to do in our state. This piece was produced by Rick Lewis and myself, Anastasia Tidorenko. A big thanks to Eva Kendrick and Patricia Todd for being a part of this. To learn more about the HRC, check out hrc.org. Our theme music is All the Colors in the World by Poddington Bear. Other music used was Siesta and Last Dance by Jazar, and Dunes, Solemn Oath, A Gentleman, We Make a Good Team, and Outmoded Waltz by Poddington Bear, who also did our credits theme, Collocate. Special thanks to Dr. Rebecca Ballard, Andrew Grace, Chip Brantley, Paul Kennedy, Allie Thomason, the University of Alabama Honors College, and the Sanford Media Center. If you like what you heard today, share this with someone you know. You can find our page on Facebook at Way Out Alabama Podcast. Please like us, share us, and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening.